We bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the thoughts of our hearts be acceptable to you through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. I was on the American Atheist website recently, and um, they, they love to post things of this nature. Um, there was an article there, a posting called Bible Contradictions, and they love to uh, expose you to so-called uh, biblical contradictions to, I, I think, in an attempt to shake your faith. And uh, a contradiction, of course, are, is two statements that conflict with one another, okay? They, they don't agree, they contradict one another. And an atheist loved to comb through the Bible looking for conflicting statements, but it turns out that all of these so-called conflicting statements have been explained. I mean, you can go on to other websites and find how Christians answer those so-called contradictions. There's videos on YouTube you can find. You can read books. Entire books have been written uh, explaining the so-called contradictions of the Bible. They're not really contradictions at all. The Bible does not contradict itself, but what the atheists do not know, what they could not imagine is that God actually does contradict himself. God will at times act in such a way so as to contradict something that he said or promise that he has made. Sometimes his actions appear to contradict his promise. That's true in the life of Abraham, our subject for tonight. God had promised Abraham that through Isaac, his son, his descendants would be named or reckoned. Through Isaac, God would give descendants to Abraham as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But then God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son. In page 9 in your worship bulletin, Roman number 1, God's command to sacrifice Isaac seems to contradict God's promise to provide descendants through Isaac. God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. And Abraham must be thinking, what? Really? Imagine receiving a command like that to destroy the person you love. What would you think of God? Letter A, a quote from Luther. God, who formerly appeared as Abraham's friend, now suddenly seems an enemy and a tyrant. An enemy and a tyrant. If God were to ask me to give up my wife, to give up my daughters, 
I suppose I might ask of him something like this. What have I done to you that you would treat me in this way? Have I done something to make you my enemy? Letter B. Abraham's trial is that he must live in contradiction to God's promise. He has to live in contradiction to the promise God has made to him. Abraham is commanded by God to do something that conflicts with the very promise God has made. The command negates the promise, and it makes no sense. Letter C. Luther admitted that not only could he not do such a thing himself, he could not even witness what God had asked Abraham to do. I don't think I could either. I don't think I could stand there and watch what Abraham was supposed to do. God commanded Abraham to do the unthinkable, and then Abraham does it. Roman number two. Abraham elevates God's will, God's will above all earthly kin and commitments. Now, let me ask you this. Who else can you think of that did that as well? Who else can you think of would elevate God's will above all earthly relationships and all earthly commitments? Well, it's the one who said, who are my mother and my brothers? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. That's Jesus. So, Roman numeral two, you could substitute Jesus' name for Abraham. Jesus elevates God's will above all earthly kin and commitments. Letter A, God was Abraham's dearest treasure God's will, his chief concern. And that's a quote from an old Lutheran commentator, H.C. Leupold. God was Abraham's dearest treasure. God's will, his chief concern. Who was it who said, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me? Well, that would be Jesus once again. So you could substitute Jesus' name here in letter A. God was Jesus' dearest treasure. God's will was Jesus' chief concern. Just as Abraham was able to subordinate everything in life to God's will, so was Jesus. Like father, Abraham, like son, Jesus. So we'll look at Abraham this week. David next week, and Joseph in two weeks. And these fathers of Jesus are all sort of coming attractions of what Jesus is and who he is. They are coming attractions as to what Jesus will be like. They are all Christ figures. They all manifest some quality of the coming Savior. Now, Usually it works like this. People draw parallels between Isaac, the son of Abraham, and Jesus, and for good reason. Both are sons. Both 
are miraculously conceived. Both are sacrificial victims. Both carry their own wood to the place of sacrifice. And the similarities continue from there. Isaac is another important father or ancestor of our Lord Jesus. And the parallels between the two are striking. But the more I thought about Abraham, the more I wanted to focus on him after I understood that he was tested in the same way Jesus was tested. Both men learned to subordinate everything to the will of God, and both men learned to trust God even when God seemed to turn against them. And that's important. They learned to trust God even when God did not appear to be trustworthy. And just as God seemed to have become Abraham's enemy, so God seemed an enemy of Jesus. Jesus said from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God abandoned Jesus at the cross. That abandonment was what you and I had earned. It's what you and I had deserved, but it's what Jesus took upon himself. And yet, Jesus continued to trust in that same God, even at the cross. Jesus referred to God not as you, but as my God, my God possession. He still owns God. He still confesses him. Letter B. Abraham believed that God could and would raise Isaac up. We read that in Hebrews chapter 11, but you even see a glimmer of it in Genesis 22. Verse 5, then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, I and the boy. Now, this is literal from the Hebrew. I and the boy will go over there, and we will worship, and we will return to you. That's a hint that although Isaac will die, he will not remain dead. And then we read in Hebrews, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of contradicting the promises, offering up his own son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, in a manner of speaking, he did receive him back from the dead. Letter C, or, yeah, letter C then. And I love this uh, quote from Leupold. The external sacrifice was not the object God sought. Yet, God allowed this situation to develop so that the inner sacrifice was achieved. Although God did not allow Abraham to cut Isaac's throat, in his heart, the deed was already done. In his heart, Abraham had already given up on Isaac. God was Abraham's dearest treasure, God's will, his chief concern. Abraham elevated God's will above everything else in life, including his only son whom he loved. 
And when you grasp that about Abraham, you can see a direct line to his descendant, Jesus Christ. Jesus elevated God's will above everything and everyone in his life. Only a man who could do that could also go to the cross and willingly bear the judgment of God for the sin of the world, your sin and mine, forgiven and done. Roman numeral three. Faith, however sorely tested, will not let go of God's promises. It will not let go of God's promises. God dealt with our forefather Jacob in a contradictory way. God commanded Jacob to leave his father-in-law Laban and to return to the promised land. Jacob journeyed home in obedience to the command of God, but then God blocked Jacob's path. And he wrestled, God wrestled with Jacob all night. And the Lord finally said, Jacob was prevailing. And the Lord said, let me go, the sun is rising. And I think the implication there is you can't look upon the face of God and live. And so Jacob would be in great danger if he continued to pin God down after sunrise. And Jacob replied, I will not let you go until you bless me. That's faith, see. Even when God opposes him, he continues to believe. Jacob continued to believe in the goodness of God, even when God appeared an enemy. Job endured great suffering at God's hands, and yet Job declared, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. The Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, I love that story. She appealed to Jesus to heal her daughter who was demon-possessed, but Jesus refused her again and again. However, the woman would not give up. She continued to believe Jesus would be merciful to her even when he seemed unmerciful. And she was proven right. And my friends, this contains an important lesson for you and me. There will be times in your life when God seems distant, when it seems he does not care. There may be times when God appears as your enemy. Do not believe it. Remember Abraham. Remember Abraham's descendant, Jesus. God tested them severely. But God proved faithful in the end. He proved worthy of their trust. God may act contrary to his promises, but his promises remain. Faith continues to cling to God and his promises, even when reason sees no reason to. And in the words of the hymn, Behind a frowning providence, faith sees a smiling face. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. <laughs>